So we turn to Job 24, reading the entirety of that chapter. This is Job's second half of his response to Eliphaz in chapter 22, but we'll be reading the entirety of Job 24. God's holy and inspired word, give your attention to the reading of it, Job 24. Why are not times of judgment kept by the Almighty? And why do those who know him never see his days? Some move landmarks. They seize flocks and pasture them. They drive away the donkey of the fatherless. They take the widow's ox for a pledge. They thrust the poor off the road. The poor of the earth all hide themselves. Behold, like wild donkeys in the desert, the poor go out in their toil-seeking game. The wasteland yields food for their children. They gather their fodder in the field. They glean the vineyard of the wicked man. They lie all night naked, without clothing, and have no covering in the cold. They're wet with the rain of the mountains and cling to the rock for lack of shelter. There are those who snatch the fatherless child from the breast. They take a pledge against the poor. They go about naked, without clothing, hungry, they carry the sheaves. Among the olive rows of the wicked, they make oil. They press the wine presses, but suffer thirst. From out of the city, the dying groan. The soul of the wounded cries for help, yet God charges no one with wrong. There are those who rebel against the light, who are not acquainted with his ways, who do not stay in his past. The murderer rises before it is light. Yet he may kill the poor and needy, and in the night he is like a thief. The eye of the adulterer also waits for the twilight, saying, No, I will see me, and he veils his face. In the dark they dig through houses. By day they shut themselves up. They do not know the light. For deep darkness is morning to all of them, and they are friends with the terrors of deep darkness. Swift are they on the face of the waters. Their portion is cursed in the land. No treader turns toward their vineyards. Drought and heat snatch away the snow waters. So does Sheol those who have sinned. The womb forgets them. The worm finds them sweet. They are no longer remembered. So wickedness is broken like a tree. They wrong the barren, childless woman. They do no good to the widow. Yet God prolongs the life of the mighty by his power. They rise up when they despair of life. He gives them security, and they are supported, and his eyes are upon their ways. They are exalted a little while, and then are gone. They are brought low and gathered up like all others. They are cut off like the heads of grain. If it is not so, who will prove me a liar and show that there is nothing in what I say. As far as the reading of God's word, may he bless it to us. So what happens when you leave a group of people unsupervised? You've got a bunch of middle schoolers all at home, and there's not a single parent. Or a classroom full of kids, but no teacher. The office has all the employees, but no boss. Or a busy city with no police. Well, in most cases, if not in all, 
things soon get rowdy and out of hand. Free from adult oversight, kids break into the Lord of the Flies. Workers will blow off work and abuse company property, and without cops, criminals come out to play with uh, impunity. Yet nearly in every situation with no accountability, chaos ensues. Evil runs rampant. Yet we as humans need laws, authorities, and punishments for crimes. And yet if this is the case, why does it seem that God so often has left the world without supervision? God's judgment of evil appears infrequent and sometimes non-existent. For when was the last time that there was a clear judgment of God like that of Sodom or the flood? Well, it's been a long time. And with God seemingly hidden and absent, there is no shortage of wickedness and evil in our world that lives wild and free. Well, Job laments this facet of our world, and from his sadness, we are directed to one of the better answers from God. So we're halfway through Job's response to Eliphaz in chapter 22. As you'll remember, Eliphaz charged Job with being famously sinful, and he insisted that God was punishing him, and he called him to repent for hope of reconciliation. Now, to this, Job really didn't say much in chapter 23. Instead, he reiterated his need to find God to have a trial for his vindication. He did assert his uprightness in imitating God's moral goodness, and he shuddered at the prospect of standing before the Lord. Confident yet fearful, Job was softened by God but not melted. Well, now in the second part of his response, Job does take up the gauntlet dropped on him by Eliphaz, at least in part. So remember, Eliphaz, along with the other friends, dogmatically confessed that God was judging Job, explicitly, glaringly, and unmistakably. No questions about it. Well, it is this thread of judgment that now Job pulls on as he next files a question of lament. Why are not times of judgment kept by the Almighty? Now, the image here is that of a regularly scheduled times when the court is held for judgment. For this was something that was quite normal for the states and societies of Job's day and actually throughout history. That is, the king or the judge would hold court once a month or every quarter in your own local town to try all the cases and punish the criminals. If you'll remember, Samuel did this as he traveled around from town to town to act as judge. David kept this custom in holding courts at set times. In fact, even in medieval England, they had quarter days to settle debts, resolve conflicts, and square the public record. Such a long-standing, or such is a long-standing and good custom of justice. However, the Lord doesn't really do this. The Lord doesn't unlock his court in May and October. There's no sheet to sign up for an appointment to have your appeal heard by the Lord. You can't form a queue outside his courtroom. The Lord doesn't hold court to deal out acquittals and convictions here on earth. 
Indeed, even for those who know God, as Job says, they cannot see his days. That is the times when God is on the bench. Sure, the wicked would avoid days of court, but the friends of God would surely avail themselves to it. And yet no such times of justice or judgment exist. This means, then, that there is no clear judgment. The friends shout, God always judges sinners. But Job counters, really? Where? When was the last time God summoned his court in session? Well, never, or at least it's hard to find. There's no official court files or public documents recording the court of the Lord. Today, if you don't take a picture, it doesn't exist. Well, back in the day, if there's no record, it didn't occur Job's point is that the evidence for God judging is lacking. The friends stomp their foot. God is surely judging Job. He always judges uh, 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 sinners. But Job retorts, but God doesn't hold court. Where's the evidence that the Almighty judges the wicked? In fact, the data points in the other direction that God doesn't punish evil very often. Indeed, where is the proof that God holds sinners to account? Thus, now Job files evidence on how the villainous thrive with impunity. And he spits out a whole list of injustices that are not held to account. He says the wicked move landmarks, they steal property. Then they rob entire herds and graze them as their own. From, from orphans, people will take their donkeys A poor widow has one last cow to her name, and this too is seized. The fatherless infant is calmly nursing, and criminals will rip the baby from the mother's arms and human traffic it. A dad struggles to pay his bills, so the lone shark impounds his kids and sells them into slavery. The vulnerable are abused, the defenseless are trampled upon, and the poor are beaten down. Now, the list of felonies here is pretty typical Old Testament sampling of the powerful having their way with the powerless. And it's hard not to put your finger on modern examples of the same. Warlords rape and pillage entire villages, enslaving little kids, and they're never brought to justice. Powerful corporations squeeze their employees dry. Human traffickers ship young girls all over the world to be abused and used. Criminals will terrorize a neighborhood and even grow richer. Indeed, we can see examples in the news daily of crimes going unpunished. Corrupt politicians remain in office. Wicked executives will bankrupt a company and retire with a golden parachute. Cries for justice ring in our ears as the feeling that justice has failed, real or perceived, that this is persistent. Hence, Job's aim is to exhibit that without God judging, evil flourishes. Justice stayed spells criminals prospering. And this is plenty accurate at describing the life Uh, In this world, in scripture and in our own experience, cries for justice rise to heaven and God seems hidden and silent 
and so wickedness increases. The friends thought that it was easy to point to God's punishment, but actually it isn't so easy. Though Job here spends more time on the effects of these crimes that they have on the victims. Indeed, he paints an agonizing portrait of the suffering, verse 4 and following. He says, the poor of the land have to hide themselves. To eke out a survival, the victims become like animals, scavenging for scraps. Like wild donkeys, they wander the wilderness. They look for roadkill for their kids. By gleaning the orchards of the rich and picking up after the harvesters, they'll get a single bite to drop in their empty stomachs. Against the cold of the night, they shiver against the rock without a stitch of clothing. The frigid mountain rains terrorize their naked flesh. The felonies of the powerful turn the vulnerable into beasts, pillaging trash cans like raccoons. And it gets worse as the jobs that the victims do have don't pay. Note he says, the starving, they carry baskets of grain. Thirsty, they tread the wine presses. This is analogous to the law. Do not muzzle an ox while it's treading grain. A worker should enjoy the fruits of his labors. But these oppressed folk work in kitchens and they never get to eat. They make the fancy wine for the elite and never get to taste it. It's literally torture to carry a tray of meat while you're starving and not be given even a bite. Finally, from the city, the men groan and the gullet of the slain gasp for help. The abused and the victimized end up starving to death and perishing. They finish their miserable lives as a corpse, releasing a glass gasp of air for help. And such is the fate of many who are injured, ransacked, and manhandled by the wicked. Yet by dwelling on this bone-chilling suffering of the victims, Job exhibits how justice is not done, but also on how the causes of suffering are other than personal sin. Eliphaz insisted that Job is suffering for his sin. All the friends would not budge. If you suffer, then you have sinned. But what about the fatalities that come from felonies? What did the widow do to get her cow impounded? What sin is the infant guilty of to suffer being snatched from its mother's breast? Do the starving deserve not to get paid for their hard labor? Thus Job shows that when justice is not done, the wicked thrive, the vulnerable are tramped, and particularly there's a whole nother category of suffering. These casualties of crime may not be fully, quote, innocent, but they don't deserve to be victimized. In a real and practical way, they are guiltless. And yet they're afflicted like naked beasts fighting for crumbs in the garbage can. No judgment from God escalates wickedness and it intensifies undeserved anguish and trauma. And to top it all off is this pivotal line in verse 12. God charges no one with wrong. 
Or better, God does not arraign the wrongdoing. That is, after all this despicable depravity and and faultless affliction, God doesn't prosecute the felons in court. God is like a district attorney who never brings a case on behalf of the people. Lawlessness advances, the weak are victimized, but the Lord does nothing. The lights of his courtroom remain dark, and the front door is chained. Instead of judging each sinner for his own transgressions, the Lord appears to stand aloof. Villains prosper, and innocent suffering is rampant. And Job laments this with anxiety. This is his counterpart point to Eliphaz and the two other friends that Job is simply being punished for his crimes. In reality, the chances are that if Job was so guilty, he would still be thriving and rich. For him to be exposed to the cold in his birthday suit aligns, aligns him more with the victim than the felon. Indeed, now, Job continues to tell how the lack of judgment only makes the criminals bolder and more ferocious. God arraigns no wrongdoing. Therefore, the rebels uh, rebel against the light. He goes on, the wicked give no recognition of God's ways. They keep not a single toe on the good path of the Lord, and they reject every last word of God's law. They suppress morality deep within them. The rebellious live and sin with impunity. It goes on, murders rise, murderers rise with the sun to slay the poor and needy. At night, the, ro- the robbers work his woe. The adulterer slinks around in twilight, unseen in their perversity. Murder, theft, adultery, three chief sins. These are not restrained or diminished, but they strut about without fear of punishment. When the cat is away, the mice will play. When judgment comes not, lawlessness parties. Though note in this section the play on light and dark. They rebel against the light. The murderers kill by the light of the day. They sin boldly in broad daylight. And yet, this is also contrasted with the fact that they're magnetically pulled to the darkness. They rob and break in at night. The adulterer seeks twilight. The sexually promiscuous veils the face. At midnight, they break into the house, but then they seal it up, for they do not know and do, or do not like the light. Here, Job presents the wicked as those who love the darkness. Even with the arrogance to seek to sin openly during the day, they still gravitate towards the blackness of the night. The wicked hate the light, and they love the darkness. Even with the immunity to come out and sit boldly in the day, they choose to remain in the darkness. Pitch black as the sunrise they choose, they're familiar with the terrors of the shadow of death. All that is good and bright from the Lord they abhor, but they feel at home with all the evil things that lurk in the shadows. 
Now, in this way, Job pictures the nature of the wicked. They are darkness, and they love the sunless places. The love of darkness, though, also betrays the destiny of the wicked. Now, here, verses 18 through 20 are difficult, as they do not feel very Job-like. But nevertheless, it's best to take them as Job's own argument. He isn't quoting the friends here, most likely. For here, he does admit that the wicked are cursed. It says the wicked are floating lightly upon the water. Their lot speeds quickly away from the land. He finds no hiding place in the orchards. Just as dry heat robs water from snow, so Sheol steals away those who have sinned. The womb that bore the wicked forgets them. The worms that found their corpses sweet remembers them no more. From the womb to the worm, the wicked are raised from memory. Just as a tree is broken, so is their wrongdoing. Now, this overt curse upon the wicked appears unfamiliar upon Job's lips. In previous speeches, he showcased how the wicked prosper. The evil even die in peace and are lauded with grand funerals, as Job said in chapter 21. Yet this emphasis of Job doesn't exclude punishments from the wicked completely. Job never said the evil are never judged. No, he only pointed out how frequently they enjoy the blessed life. Thus, to add more nuance to his position, Job asserts that the wicked are cursed, testified to by their love of darkness. Those who are addicted to darkness, who enjoy the darkness of night, are destined for the place of darkness, Sheol. Yes, Sheol was the land of pitch dark, the realm of deep shadow, so those who were, those who are of the darkness and light, in life, will land in the pit without any light. The key, though, is that this happens in death. The wicked are cursed in Sheol, but not in the land of the living. Thus, this post-mortem curse has no significant deterrent in life. Thus, they keep wrongdoing the barren woman. They rape the widow for no good reason. The wicked love the mantra, let's eat and drink today, for tomorrow we die. Enjoy crime now, for it won't last in death. Therefore, Job doesn't deny that God punishments. He doesn't charge God with injustice. The wicked are destined for the lightless land of Sheol. But this doesn't fix his present lament that God doesn't hold judgment days in this life, and that death as punishment doesn't deter the felon from more crimes. It doesn't ease the plight of the victimized. As he states, God actually preserves and maintains the life of the depraved. God's eyes watch the ways of the wicked. They are exalted for a bit, and then they will be no more. Yet in the here and now, under this sun, the Lord yet prolongs the life of the wicked. He holds no court to dish out death and judgment. And without judgment, 
the wicked have no deterrent. Without a court date, the traumatized innocent have no hope of relief. And if the widow and orphan get no date in court, then what hope is there for Job? Therefore, Job seals off this speech here with a challenge. Who will prove me a liar? Who can demonstrate that there is nothing in what I say? Here, Job bets his friends that they cannot refute his evidence and argument. And this is a pretty accurate description of the world in which we live, of the creation that God oversees and governs. The Almighty does not have set days to judge the wicked and to relieve the victims. And with justice delayed, the wicked will play. Evil flourishes on earth without the judgment of God, and the agony and trauma of the weak throbs as chronic pain. Thus, is Job right? Can we prove him wrong? Is his argument that the lack of punishment in this life makes evil worse? Is this correct? Well, overall, his position is sound. In fact, we can find similar laments throughout Scripture. Prayers and calls to the Lord to deliver the saints from persecution echoes within the pages of the Bible. For hundreds of years, the Hebrews burned under the Egyptian whip. In Psalm 10, we we read, Lord, why do you stand far off? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? For an arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Ecclesiastes remarks how the poor have no comforter, for power belongs to the oppressor. Ezra and Nehemiah prayed for the relief under their heavy burden. And in the New Testament, the martyrs cry out, How long, O Lord, until you avenge our shed blood? The delay of judgment is a fact of our world under the sun. And this delay amplifies suffering, hardship, and many unanswered prayers. Thus the question is, why? Why does the Lord not hold annual days of court to correct the world's evils? Indeed, this is a searing part of Job's pain that he doesn't get why the Lord delays punishment. Job doesn't cross the line and charge God with injustice of failing as the Lord. He comes close, but he doesn't go there. Yet, as you know, many have went there. We are well familiar with all sorts of charges that God is not just. We can hear this from the world. We hear it from other religions and even from within the church. One simple look at all the evil of our world and fists are raised against heaven. Unbelief pickets the courthouse of God, chanting justice delayed is justice stayed. No good God or no good God would let such suffering come to the innocent. So then, why does God not perform justice now? Well, first, we shouldn't exaggerate, as Job is doing a bit here. Sure, the heavenly court doesn't have regularly scheduled court sessions on earth. 
But in his providence, God has established earthly courts and governments. They're far from perfect. They don't administer final justice. But God restrains tons of wickedness through the punishments of the state. Earthly rulers are God's ministers to punish lawbreakers. Limited and flawed, the state courts may be, but a healthy dose of relative justice and relief still flow from them. Therefore, God does apply a measure of justice here on earth through his common grace uh, um, law and courts. Secondly, though, there is another reason that Scripture gives us for God permitting so much injustice to continue. And this is pictured in the colors of the rainbow. God puts off final and perfect justice so that Christ could come. He delays justice so that the gospel might go forth to rescue more and more who are guilty. Evangelical patience. This is why God puts off so much punishment. The Lord permits the wicked to live longer so that they might repent and come to faith in Christ. When we focus on all the evils of this world, and there are many, we often act like we know exactly what justice should be. We get hasty to deal out death and judgment, which not even the wise can do super well. In our urgency to do, quote, justice, we often fashion more injustices. Besides, our point of view is so limited. We see a hungry child and we think, how dare you, God? But a season of earthly hunger is nothing compared to eternity. Our categories of innocent and guilty are so shallow compared to the Lord's. Thus the Lord let that thief continue stealing until he put him on the cross next to Jesus. If God had executed that robber sooner, he never would have met Christ upon the cross. And the same goes for us. If God was hasty to punish us in our sin, we may have never heard the voice of our Savior. Thus, God delays justice for the sake of the gospel. He puts off justice so that the mercy of God in Christ might triumph for us and for all who've been given to the Son. Therefore, in in his inspired word, the Father gives us more clarity than Job. Yes, God delays justice, and such waiting means wickedness will thrive and suffering will increase. But it also creates the context for the grace of Jesus Christ to save many sinners. For at the end of the day, in light of holy justice, no one is innocent. All of our guilt, or all of us are guilty, and fallen short of the grace of God, or the glory of God, but are saved in Christ as a gift of grace. Sure, the wickedness of this age is painful, but we should see the pain for what it really is. The most blessed opportunity for the salvation of Christ 
to spread far and wide. Besides, in the resurrection of Christ, the Father does give us the sweet and certain hope of heaven's holy peace. This evil age will not last. And there is a final day when this fallen age will be laid in the grave and new creation will burst forth in bright splendor. Then the Lord will set all things right. He will dry our last tears and then he will welcome all who believed in Christ into his blessed realm for eternity. Thus may the gospel go forth boldly with much fruit in this fallen world until Christ comes again. And may he do so in his good and perfect time. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen. Let's pray.